This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, this is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. If you're looking for a show that explores all things paranormal with dramatic storytelling, historical research, relevant science, and witness accounts, check out our show online at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com or through your favorite podcast player. Hey guys, welcome to episode 218 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy? Yes, my baby doll. It's been a unique week, to say the least. You've been uh, having some pains that we ended up going to the hospital about, where you end up spending two days that you thought initially was back pains, and it turned out to be kidney stones. Kidney stones... UTI, and my sugar was 700. What the hell? Well, it's nice for you to try to break several records all in one day. You know, I'm, I'm just a go-getter. <laughs> I just don't know what else to say. <laughs> but well, well, all is well now. That is true. And while you're, we're on that subject, I wanted to say thank you to everybody that said prayers, you know, sent me messages, well wishes. You guys are amazing. And it truly did help me because you guys, I just love you all so much. You're such a caring group. And I'm just, I feel blessed to have every one of you in my life. So I love you guys. Thank you for your prayers. You know, um, there's always going to be something with me. I have a feeling. So <laughs> I guess just keep a couple prayers handy. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to need them again someday. You might need to sling them really, really quick. <laughs> Big Big uh, thank you to all of our military, civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you all so very much. I got to talk to someone in the Canadian military the other oh, night, nice. last night. So. Very, very cool. Yeah, thank you guys for all you do. I have a cousin that lives in Oregon, and she said it finally like rained like no other. So Good. thank God for that. Um, you know, just, you know, just want to say... A special prayer, I guess, for our firefighters. I don't know how they do it. I just, I don't, I don't know how they do what they do. And there's just such a blessing to everybody. And they are real angels. And just God bless every one of you for keeping everybody safe. Also want to remind everybody that if you're struggling, if you're going through a rough time and you need to talk to somebody, then we are always there for you. We, uh, we want you to know that we care. We want you to know that there is a group of about 5,000 people, our Facebook group, that can be there for you at any time. So if you uh, want a little extra support in life, join our group, and I think you'll find what you need at any point in time. I believe that. Uh, again, another blessing. I don't know how we've been so blessed to have all these wonderful people, you know, our one big family and like jerry said we are always there for you guys please don't hesitate day or night to give us a call um we will do our best um 
But if that's not the case, if you'd rather call um, somebody else, you can call the suicide hotline. It's 800-273-8255, or you can text them at 741-741, and they will be there for you as well. And a little extra for you, we have a new show sponsor called BetterHelp. Yes. And they are online counseling for any situation that we'll tell you a little bit about them later in the show. Mm-hmm. And you said um approximately 373 times during that little spill. Are you serious? Yes, no, really? I counted it. Oh, you better edit some of that out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying it so much. I'm sorry. All right. Real quick before we get into the show, we are happy to be sponsored by the OU Coteco Hot Sauce. Them, them guys have been so great to us, especially during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They have stepped in and filled a void that a lot of people left just because of the natural, right. um, uh, everybody cutting back on advertising, and we we're so very thankful to have them. They re-upped for another three months, and that means so much to us. Oh, my gosh. It sure does. You guys are the best. Yeah, that is because of you guys posting all these pictures of the hot sauce and uh, and tagging El Yucateco as well as us on Instagram. That, that helped us tremendously. The littlest things you'd be surprised, you know, mean so much. And I have a new thing. So I tried it in gravy. Like breakfast gravy, and um, yeah, it's so good. You all have to try it. It's so delicious. Sam was putting them on hot dogs the other day. I tell you, I'm trying to find everything I can to put it on. I just, honestly, I just love the flavor of them all. So it's kind of exciting to see what it'll go with. So you got seven different flavors, five of which are habanero-based. The other two are chipotle and uh, jalapeno. So you got seven different all together. They are the number one habanero-based Hot sauce in the United States and top 10 out of all hot sauces. They, you can find them at most of your major grocers, including Target and including uh, Walmart, uh, two of the main ones. Mm-hmm. If you don't see it, ask your grocers to please start carrying it. Uh, you're going to love it on anything you eat. And for some reason, if you can't find it, you can go to lyoucatecall.com and not only order the hot sauce, but you can order some uh, merch. Yes, order. do that, you guys. Show them some love. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Tracy. What, Jerry? Real life zombies. Okay. This is exciting. Because, and it's kind of dumb too. Not really. But I have been watching Halloween Wars. Oh my gosh, do you guys watch this show? Like seriously? I am just blown away about what these people can do with pumpkins. Like it's been zombies this week is what they've been doing. Yeah, it might, it might help to actually tell people who might not know that Halloween Wars is a cooking show. Oh, I've just figured everybody knew that. Well, no. Oh, well, anyway, you guys, if you can watch that during this season, you should watch it. You will be blown away by how some of these things are so daggone creepy. Yeah, they're very creative. They are so creative. And you're like, how in the heck? They just had this one guy. He had a pumpkin. The pumpkin weighed 1,500 pounds. 1,500 pounds, you hear me? That's a big old pumpkin. At the place we just went to, that would have cost you $750. Oh, my gosh. They said it's the biggest pumpkin they've ever had on Halloween Wars. And it was amazing what they did. It's just amazing. But I know I got off subject. But when you said zombies, that's what I automatically went to. So Of course you did. Sorry, guys. Of course, when I said zombies, you went to a cooking show. <laughs> it's amazing. Just watch it. You'll be, you'll be glad you did. So go ahead, babe. All right. So we're all familiar with zombies, right? I said it was. Yeah. Well, you're in a different aspect. So they became popular really back in 1968 when George Romero's Night of the Living Dead came out. 
that was kind of most people's real uh, mainstream yeah, go to. introduction to zombies. In the last 20 years, it's became immensely popular, especially with the unslot of, sort of uh, virus-type movies that are mm-hmm. out there, and then all of the um, TV shows and stuff came out, which obviously the biggest being The Walking Dead, that's actually become one of the biggest TV series of all time. Isn't it? And that the new series starting, it's not done yet, is it? The what? The Walking Dead. I think The Walking Dead is done. Oh, really? I yeah. thought I saw advertisements. Maybe I didn't. Yeah. I think they're either on the last season or they already completed the gotcha. last season. So the show itself may be a zombie. I don't know. Maybe, oh, maybe that's what you're thinking. Could be. <laughs> so we see the dead return back to life. And, and they seek out, obviously, brains of the living people and stuff. I mean, that's that's kind of what you're used to seeing. That's you know, But zombies are actually based on true belief. And tonight we're going to learn about some of the beliefs and find out the origin of zombies and maybe hear about a real one or two. Think there's real ones? Oh, I know there is. Stop. We're going to find out. Oh my gosh, now I'm scared. So when most people think about zombies on the big screen, uh, Night of the Living Dead is actually the one that comes to mind. Now, George Romero actually called the creatures ghouls in Night of the Living Dead. It wasn't until Dawn of the Dead came out 10 years later that they referred to as zombies. So they weren't zombies in the Night of the Living Dead. They were ghouls. Oh. I think they went to a better name. Well, there's a reason for that. Romero didn't call them zombies because he knew that zombies were actually undead Haitian slaves. So it wouldn't have made sense to call them. Now, Bela Lugosi was in a movie uh, called... The White Zombies, which was in 1932, and that actually depicted Haitian slave zombies. So it was actually realistic of what a zombie was Mm -hmm. in that movie, and that was 1932. So by the time Dawn of the Dead came around, uh, almost 50 years later, zombies in our culture had shifted uh, to more of a flesh-eating monster. That's what people think of when they think zombie, but that's not the, the natural... And the original tomb. So we're going to get into all that. Zombies go all the way back to the 17th century in Haiti when the country was ruled by France. The slavery under the French was extremely brutal with half of the slaves being worked to death within a few years. This led to the importation of even more slaves. Today when we think of zombies we think of the uh, creatures that go out and eat the flesh of their victims. But the original zombies ate flesh. But it was their own flesh and not the flesh of other people. Wait, they ate their own meat? Sort like of. their own body? Sort of. Oh. You'll see what I mean when we get okay. a little more into it. From 1625 to 1800, Haitian slaves felt that the dying would actually send them back to Africa and an afterlife where they could be free. That was their thoughts because they were all slaves mm-hmm. and it was just such a horrible life for them there. They felt that death had to be better than what oh, they had. How sad. Suicide was very common among the slaves, but it was a common belief for those who took their own life that they wouldn't be allowed to return to Africa. Instead, they would be doomed to spend eternity on the plantation that they had been enslaved at. They would be an undead slave trapped inside of a soulless body, and that was the original definition of a zombie. Oh my God, that's heartbreaking to hear that. In 1804, the Haitian Revolution ended the French's reign and the zombies became part of Haitian folklore. So the definition or myth of the zombies started to change a little bit. It became entangled in the voodoo religion. At this point, 
The Haitians believed that the zombies were corpses brought back to life by a shaman or a voodoo priest. Some, known as bokors, would use the undead as slaves for free labor or had them carry out nefarious deeds. So if they wanted somebody killed or something mm-hmm. like that, they would have their... They would make them do their it? Their zombie do it. It's almost like having them hypnotized or something like that to to be under their spell, so to speak. Well, what a sucky life. Eventually, becoming a zombie would be a punishment from a voodoo priest or a community for a crime of some sort, which is where it's at today. So this was the biggest fear of most of the 7 million people in Haiti, most of which practiced voodoo. The thought of losing one's soul and one's will was worse than death. So you're saying today they still practice voodoo? Oh, yeah. They still practice voodoo in New Orleans. Well, I guess that's right. That's scary. (laughs) Don't piss me off. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The term zombie comes from the Congo, which is the primary language of Central Africa. And and what happened was most of these slaves came from that area and was imported to Haiti, which is why a lot of times, you know, they're they're still going to have their African language with them. And that's where the term uh, zombie actually comes from. In Haiti, stories of zombies and zombification is widely accepted. Throughout the rest of the world, it's widely misunderstood and radically sensationalized, which makes for great movies and stuff, but it's not reality. Unfortunately, Hollywood has dictated to most of the people what a zombie is, which is why we all think pretty much the same thing. If I say zombie, you think what we see on TV. Mm -hmm. So according to voodoo tradition, The creation of a zombie requires that a person's spirit be separated from the body. The spirit, known as a cult zombie, is then kept in a jar by a voodoo priest. The zombie is then used as slave labor by the community after it has been further deteriorated by zombie powder. Zombie powder? According to voodoo legend, a zombie powder is a poison, toxic substance that is used to turn the unwanted person... In the community into a zombie. So if you're if you were in Haiti and you lived in the community and you did something wrong, you didn't go to jail. What they mix it in the drink? No, they, you they have well we'll get into it a little more because I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the core oh, aspect okay. of it. Once it takes hold in its victim, they have limited abilities to walk. They completely lose all their ability to think, talk, and respond. People in Haiti are extremely clear about what a zombie is. So when you mention zombie over there, they don't think what we think. So I want to talk about a zombie case that I found absolutely fascinating. In the spring of 1880, Clervius Narcisse arrived in his hometown in Haiti. It's a small little problem here, though, because Clervius had died almost 20 years ago. He's a little late for the party. As you can imagine, this sent shockwaves to the community. Narcisse agreed that he had returned from the dead. So let's go back to 1962. Narcisse was a very rich landowner there in Haiti. Uh, Haiti is a very impoverished country. Still Mm. is today. Yeah. It was back then, is today. He flaunted his wealth. As you can imagine, that probably did not go well. He had several women. He had several children by those women. He neglected and refused to take care of any of his children or the mothers. Well, what a jerk. Members of his family found his lifestyle, which was completely 
against the voodoo beliefs. Appalling. His biggest mistake, though, was he tried to sell a piece of property that belonged to his family without their permission. This action made him a criminal under voodoo code of ethics. This land was not supposed to be divided, and because Haiti was so poor, taking the land of others was a crime that was as serious as taking someone's life. I mean, I can imagine it was. Cases like this would be decided by a special voodoo court that is separate from traditional judicial system. So you had the judicial system, and you had the voodoo court. You don't want to go to voodoo court. No, you do not. (laughs) Presiding over these courts was a black magician, or a sorcerer, known as a brocure. So the brother of Clarivius Narcisse, he filed a claim against him for his behavior in the village, mainly selling that land. So the trial in the voodoo court of justice started just a short time later. So they didn't waste no time. There was a group of peers there at the trial, including members of his family, that would act as a jury. The secret society found him guilty, and they sentenced him to the ultimate punishment. Zombification. (laughs) Ninjification. Ninjification. Zombification was a way to rid somebody from the community without actually killing them. And as we discussed, to the person, that's a fate worse than death. You know, that's weird, though, that they have, like, his family members on the jury. The family members want to turn him in. Well, yeah, I I mean, I get that, but I'm just saying that's just, like, you don't have that today. Yeah, they're all part of the community. Well, I mean, they might have that today over there in in voodoo trials. Yeah. So So what is zombification? Yeah. (laughs) So this put them in a position where they could never annoy anybody else in society when they did the zombification. So on April 30th, 1962, Narcisse was admitted to the... Well, the zombification, we'll get into a little more, a little bit later from the process. But right now, we'll just breeze through this story. Okay. So on April 30th, 1962, Narcisse was admitted to an American-ran Albert Schweitzer Hospital in Haiti. He was complaining of chills, fever, and some other symptoms. His condition deteriorated rapidly, and three days later, he was pronounced dead by two different doctors. The death certificate was prepared, and it was signed by the two doctors, and they even had the fingerprint of Narcisse's sister showing that she verified that he was dead on Mm -hmm. the death certificate. Narcisse was then placed into cold storage for 20 hours. Narcisse said that he could hear everything that was going on around him. What? He could hear the doctor pronounce him dead. He heard his sister crying. And the next day, he was at the cemetery at the funeral. He could hear everything that was going on. Oh, how horrifying. On May 4th, he was buried in a traditional Haitian ceremony. He was in a crude pine casket that had the lid nailed shut. It was then lowered into the the freshly dug hole and covered with dirt and stones. Ten days later, his family placed a heavy concrete memorial slab over top of the grave. Well, shoot, they ain't playing, are they? Well, I guess that's the way they do it. I was reading something the other day where somebody did it, like they had a big slab that covered almost a whole grave that they just laid on top of the ground. Oh, gosh. So in interviews after Narcisse returned... He says that he was well aware of everything that went on here. He heard all the crying at the funeral. 
Narcisse said that during the funeral, he felt as if he was a spirit floating above his own grave. He saw the lowering of the casket, according to him. God, can you imagine? He's got a scar on his neck that he claims is from the nail that was in the coffin, where he, I guess, hung it on a nail or something. He knew that he was not dead, and he was aware that he was a zombie. So sometime later, he wasn't sure if it was hours or if it was days, he heard men above him. A group of men, led by a Bokor, dug up his grave. They removed his body from the casket and gave him a potion to drink. This potion revived him and gave him the ability to move his limbs. He was then under the control of the Brokor. It's just the way it works. So it's like anybody can come and just take your your soul when you're a zombie because you're just like open for anybody to take and control. You're like a puppet at that point. So, but you still can't do nothing about it because like, you, like I don't want to be a puppet. Just let me. No, you don't have a cho- choice. You don't that's, have a that's choice. What, that's what the zombification does is it, it removes, it strips you of all that. It strips you of all of your will and just makes you where you're a puppet basically. So he, now he's alive again, but he's stripped of his soul or as the Haitians call it, Tibonage. How do you like that? I do. I like that. So now he had his soul still, but he was no longer in control of it. So, I mean, there was something inside, but it, he had no will of it. Yeah, but his soul was yucky anyway, it sounds like, the way he treated people. <laughs> it does sound like it. So now he belongs to the Bokur, and he says that he's now enslaved and was taken to another part of the island where he was forced to work on a plantation. He planted yams, corn, and coffee there. After two years of working as a slave, he got a stroke of good luck. One of the slaves killed the Bokor. This freed him and the other zombies. He was able to get some of his soul back, I guess, by this guy being gone now, who was his controller. Narcisse said he showed up in the village 18 years later after he had gotten word that the brother, who had actually filed charges against him, had passed away. So he waited for, you know, another 16 years after he was released before he came back to town, only after the brother had turned him in and had passed away. That is the craziest crap I've ever heard. And plus on that, in the plantation he was at, he was put there with all kinds of other zombies. Everybody on the plantation, he said, was zombies. But you know what? But that's what he gets. So now he could, in return, see what they went through when he was rich and treating him like crap. Probably so. So Narcisse showed up at the marketplace. Now, keep in mind, he was very well known before. So when he shows up at this marketplace, everything was a buzz. They're like, oh, my God, how's this guy here? Yeah. We know that he died. We all, you know, it's a small town. Yeah. They all knew who he was. There was no mistaking when he walked in. That's him. So according to Narcisse, his sister, uh, Angelica, was notified that, hey, uh, your brother is up here at the market. So she comes to see for herself. When he greeted her, he used a childhood nickname that only her family would have known. Oh, my gosh. So at first she kind of pushed him away because partly she was in shock. What was the nickname, I wonder? I don't know. And then the other part was he's still a criminal. Risen from the dead or not, he is still a criminal. Once a zombie, always a zombie. That doesn't change. Yeah. 
So his family and neighbors eventually allowed to let them let him live back in the village again. But even though he was here and alive, the punishment still stood. So in the eyes of the voodoo justice, he was still a criminal. Even though he was allowed to live there, he was not allowed to earn a living, and he was not allowed to regain his status in society. He did become somewhat of a celebrity, because everybody had heard of a zombie, but no one in the community had actually seen one with their own eyes. So, so did he, I'm sorry, so did ahead. he still look, I guess, he didn't age, I guess. No, he aged. Oh, he, he did? Was, yeah, he aged. Yeah. Narcisse gave several interviews from news agencies all around the world. He said that on the plantation he was enslaved in, there were 151 other zombies. That is a lot. <laughs> Doctors examined him, uh, psychiatrists studied him, and no one could find a way to discount his story. There was no DNA samples, though, so obviously, you know, we're talking back 1980, they really weren't doing DNA samples yeah. back then. But the townspeople, they had no doubt that was him. They just knew. As soon as they saw him, it was him. And then they knew it without him even saying a word. I mean, I can't even imagine how scared they were. They were probably so scared, that's why they let him live there. You think? No, I think they just probably forgive. Yeah, well, that's Maybe. nice. Some experts seem to think that this has to be a clear case of mistaken identity, especially since he was in cold storage for 20 hours. They feel that there's no possible way someone could have even made it to been frozen, basically, for 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Hypothermia and all that stuff. Even if he was yeah. alive when he went in there, he would have had certainly been near his deathbed. How could he have survived 20 hours in cold storage? But uh, he actually died for the second time, this time supposedly for good in 1994 but as a voodoo priest that i was looking at an interview of he said that you know when he died he was still a zombie once a zombie always a zombie so what happened in this case what happens when someone is actually turned into a zombie and this is what you asked earlier yeah so 1982 dr wade davis made four trips to haiti because he wanted to find out the scientific part of what makes a zombie he tried to study as much about the Haitian culture as he possibly could. And it's like, you know, when some people think of voodoo, they think of zombies, they think of uh, sticking pins into dolls, that type of thing. And he quickly learned that that was not the case with voodoo. The word voodoo in Haiti means to gather as a family and to revere in their spirits. So how do we in the Western Hemisphere, hemisphere think so differently about zombies? After the Haitian Revolt, we talked about that back in, what is it, uh, 1806, but, or 1804. After the Haitian Revolt, the slaves formed their own government. And it would be over 100 years later before the Western Hemisphere would actually uh, have any real contact with Haiti after that. So they were kind of on their own Dang. and left alone. But in 1915, there was a political situation. It was really unstable there. A lot of violence was going on, and President Woodrow Wilson here in the United States sent Marines to Haiti to kind of help. Uh, it was a peacekeeping mission is what it was. They obviously were, you know, completely enticed by what was going on over there. And I mean, this is a completely different culture mm-hmm. than what they had ever seen. We're talking 1915. And uh, religion-wise, the culture-wise, everything was completely different. Well, many of the Marines wrote books of their experiences there, but most of them were exaggerated about the voodoo religion and the primitive culture of Haiti. 
So some of the names of these books were uh, Cannibal Cousins, Voodoo Fire in Haiti, and stuff like that. So they said that some of the stories that came out of these books were either super exaggerated and in some cases just completely made up. So that's where a lot of people thought, oh man, this voodoo religion and all this stuff, it, a lot of it came from the books from the people over there because this was really their first experience other than uh, people in New Orleans and stuff because it had been New Orleans for hundreds of years by that time. They had been in New Orleans for a hundred years. Yeah, because you got to realize the the slaves and and stuff that came to New Orleans from Africa, from Haiti, uh, mainly from Africa. I mean, that was back, you know, seventeen hundreds. So it was basically, you know, it had been there already. This was nineteen fifteen. Mm-hmm. So it had been in Haiti for years and years and years. Even, but still, it was probably lesser known. But these books talked about everything from children being in, you know, cauldrons to. Like I said, the voodoo dolls and jump, jump, zombies crawling out of the ground and all that stuff. And that just wasn't the case. But we were reading these books in America and thinking, oh, this is this is what's going on over there. I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, right. You it's, it's a lot. It seems like it's really far fetched. But if they were there personally, then you're going to believe right, what you they would say. Think so, especially from the military and all yeah. that stuff. But so these stories were intriguing. Americans just ate it up. Now, Wade Davis, he wanted to learn about the real voodoo and what he found out. Was the like any other religion? The voodoo uh, religion provided comfort and support for the impoverished people of Haiti, and that was the main thing. Voodoo actually has a dynamic, he said, a dynamic relationship it was between the living and the dead. He said the members don't go to church to worship God; they go to church and become God. Well, that's a pretty big statement. Of course, like other religions, there's a good and an evil represented in voodoo. And these two forms are represented by two different types of priests. You've got the Hugans, which are the good. And then you've got the dark sorcerers or the Bakors that we talked about earlier. They're the ones who make the zombies. In Haiti, the fear is not of zombies, but the fear of becoming a zombie. So Wade Davis said that the evidence that Narcisse had actually been through these events that he had claimed was hard to ignore. So it's, Well, I'm sure. Wade knew that the best way to prove his claims was to discover the secrets of the zombie curse. So in order to do that, he was going to have to meet up with some Bacors, and they aren't real keen on meeting with, uh, you know, people from the United States and just kind of discussing their secrets, as you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) So... He wanted to prove that there was a potent potion that could turn someone into a zombie. So Davis was able to meet with a bokor by the name of Marcel Pierre. Now Pierre was rumored to be a part of a death squad called the Tonton Makut. And that was during the time that Papa Doc was controlling Haiti, which he was a horrible dictator. Really? Yeah. And that was back, I think he took control in 1958, I believe. Pierre was well known in the area for making zombie potions but was reluctant to cooperate in actually giving some to Davis. So what he did was he gave him a crappy one that I guess was probably fake. Davis knew it. He tested it out or whatever he hadn't left yet. But like two weeks later, he says, look, you know, I need for you to give me the real stuff. I'm going to pay, you know, you can give me the crappy stuff. I can take it back or you can give me the real stuff and you can make a lot of money off of us. So he said, look, come back the next day. So the next day he comes back. He's got all these different herbs and stuff hanging like on a clothesline drying out. So he knew that was the right stuff. And he gave it, gave it to him to be able to take back. 
he gathers up the potion and he went to a couple of other book cores that he came in contact with and he was able to get eight samples from four different book cores. Oh, yeah. He takes them home and he said he said that the ingredients varied depending on which book core it came from, but they all had human remains. Oh, gross. Natural plants from from the area there. Animals and fish. What Davis found was the key ingredient in all these samples was a neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin. And that poison comes from the puffer fish. The big thing with those jaws that go out like that? Yes. The puffer fish is found in the Caribbean waters and off the coast of Japan and the cat wants in. Sorry, the cat likes to knock on the door until we let him in. All right, so the puffer fish, they take in water, and then they swell up to make it harder for a predator to try to eat them. So that's how they swell up, is they, they suck in a bunch of water. That's oh. how they're able to expand like that. They contain one of the most powerful poisons known to man. It's so powerful that a lethal dose could fit on the head of a pen. Good Lord. It's 160,000 times stronger than cocaine as a sedative. And 100,000 times more powerful than cyanide. All that in that little bitty fish. Yes. And here's the funny part. Why don't he die? Well, I guess he's probably built up and, you know, tolerance for his own poison. Oh, yeah, that's true. Here's the funny part. The puffer fish is a delicacy in Asia. What? Yes. Diners not only love the taste, but they like the lightheadedness that you get from the trace amount of the poison when you eat the fish. And on top of that, the amount of poison in the fish increases during mating time. That's nasty. Yes. It's so toxic that it has to be prepared by specially licensed chefs. Even so, hundreds die every year from tetrodotoxin poisoning from eating puffer fish that were not prepared properly. Okay, I don't understand. Why are they even doing Why are they even cooking this fish? Why is that an option? People are stupid. Well, uh, yeah, apparently they are. I mean, as a chef, I would be scared to death. I would too. I'd be scared to death to think that I'm cooking something that if I screw up a little bit, somebody can die. Yeah, that's crazy. Which I mean, chefs deal with that all the time anyway with... Well, of course, but that's a little extreme. Yeah, this is really definitely extreme. If you got to be specially prepared just to cook a fish, you're probably just, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't know if that person cooking that fish got a C and D and barely passed the class. (laughs) Wade Wilson believes that this is what gives the Bokur the ability to put someone in a zombie state. Tetrodotoxin kills by shutting down the nervous system. There are several reports of this happening from people who die from puffer fish poisoning in Asia, and pretty much these are the same symptoms that the zombies have. No kidding. So that's why he's trying. That's why he thinks that the puffer fish, which was found in all these different samples that he got, yep, you know that would make sense that's if they're the giving link. Them, if they're giving them that and it cuts all that down. The people would become paralyzed and stop breathing. Non-lethal doses can produce. Temporary paralysis and reduced breathing to the point that could even fool a doctor into thinking that a person may be dead. This is the symptoms of zombification. 
The unique thing about this poison is that they, it can knock out all of your muscles in the body, but the individual would be fully alert, but not able to blink, talk, or to move a muscle. Oh. They could theoretically be diagnosed as dead. So you can kind of see that's almost the exact same thing yeah, that is described by Narcisse. Mm-hmm. In Japan, there were so many people that were having problems like this, probably from the puffer fish, that they were put in their coffin and they were buried alive, that they decided that there was a folk custom to where they lay the body beside the grave for three days before they actually bury it, just in case the person was not dead. So are the Bokurs using pufferfish poison to zombify people? Is this what happened to Narcisse? Because it sounds like it. Sure does. It certainly sounds like it, some of it at least, at least the part where he could hear everything and even at the funeral. Most experts dispute this, though. They say that the pufferfish poison is so lethal and so fickle that it seems pretty unlikely that these bokurs with no medical training would have the ability to know just the right amount to use to paralyze somebody and not kill them. Well, how would you know that? I don't know. So, by the way, while we're talking about Davis, it is important to note that he wrote several books, one of which was made into a really popular movie called Serpent in the Rainbow. Very good movie with Martin Sheen. I enjoyed it immensely. I don't think I've ever seen it. It's a really good movie. Okay, I'll have to check it out. There is another, another shorter zombie story in Haiti that I want to share. Because remember, I said I had a couple of them. So this is the story of T-Fam. 1979, there was a woman who was wandering around the marketplace of a small Haiti town. Apparently, the marketplace is where zombies come back to. Because that's where Narcisse came back to, too. Her name was Francina Elias. The villagers obviously felt like that she had undergone zombification. Three years before, she had been admitted to a hospital with digestive problems. She was released, but she died at her house a few days later. A local magistrate verified the death, and then a death certificate was issued, and she was buried in the village cemetery. After she reappeared, she was taken to the local hospital. And unlike Narcisse, who came back in really good physical and mental health, T-Fam was not. She was actually mentally unstable. She stared blankly and barely spoke a word. She was pretty much the image of what you would think of when you think zombified. You know, almost like she had had a lobotomy or something. Right. Well, that's very traumatizing. Villagers said that she passed through the ground, meaning that she had been given the zombie poison. She'd been accused of being unfaithful by her husband back then. She'd been engaging in prostitution, which was not welcome in the Haitian society. And that's what caused her to be zombified. Her mother confirmed that she was uh, her daughter, and she was able to do this by a scar that she had on her forehead. Mm -hmm. So that's how she was able to confirm her. After she reappeared, they opened up her grave, only to find no body and just rocks. Just rocks? Inside her grave. So many believe that the fact that people of Haiti are so quick to believe these stories of, of these people showing up and being zombies, it really just goes to show how accept, accepted it is in their culture. Some think that because they believe this so strongly, that just the fact of somebody saying they're going to make them a zombie during one of these processes is all that it takes for them to become a zombie, and they mentally buy into it so much that they think their soul is leaving, and they diminish based on that. Wow. 
That is the scariest and craziest thing I've ever heard of. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. It's it's so funny how everyone's beliefs are so different. I mean, and there is this, like, to the extreme, it seems like. Right. Wow. How terrifying. It was. Oh, my gosh. Well, that was a good story, babe. So here's what we're going to do. I've got uh, an, a nice little story that we've got Bailey and Charmaine that came on from Georgia to tell us about the Serenity ghosts mm-hmm. and the spook light down there. Okay. So what we're going to do is we'll go ahead and do the uh, Patreon and the iTunes reviews right now. Oh, Patreon will be quick. <laughs> <laughs> there was zero this week. so <laughs> That's so, okay. So it's just going to be iTunes reviews this week. Mm-hmm. All right. We have D. Weller. Wilder, Mojo Lobster, What to Do 76, 714 345, and Courtney Henya. Thank you guys. Your reviews were so sweet and awesome this week. I mean, everybody's reviews are awesome, and we appreciate them so much. Um, we appreciate if you keep them coming, we love it. It helps us out more than you guys know. Yep. Yeah. All right. Some quick housekeeping issues, and then we'll listen to our interview. Mm-hmm. So the book, uh, Hillbilly. Horror Stories from Hell to High Water is completely edited. We've got to get it formatted. So we're still on track, I think, for the end of October to come out. Very I cool. did find out, because I've had some people ask, I did find out that we will be able to take pre-orders on that, which I wasn't aware that I oh, could. Oh, well, good. But uh, it's still going to be a little bit, probably a couple of weeks before I'm, I'm able to get any information on it. But we will be able to take pre-orders on that. Um, so that's, that's good news. Yeah, it is good news. So excited about that. And then also we've got our, uh, I think we've only got like 15 tickets left for Bobby Mackey's. Which I'm so excited for. October 25th, that is a Sunday, 12 to 3. Uh, It's going to be bring your own refreshments and stuff, but it's going to be a blast. And like I said, we've only got about 15 tickets left, so you might want to snag those if you're going to get them. We will be social distancing and we'll have masks and hand sanitizer and all that on, on hand. Yeah. And we've also asked the spirits to comply with that. Yes, we have. We have. The spirits will have masks as well. The mechanical bull will have a mask on. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, that's uh, uh, we've got a new T-shirt store, so other merch and stuff, but we have masks, speaking of which. We have masks that are available now with our logo and stuff. So many people asked about it, mm-hmm. and they're only like 15 bucks. So they're actually cheaper than what I paid for my mask when I got them. But the new store is really cool. Check it out. And uh, I think you guys will like it. And we won't have any of those difficulties, I don't think, online that people had had trying to buy stuff. Well, good. That's always helpful. And we're going to run a sale like at least once a month. I don't know when okay. it'll be, but it's like the, they do it site-wide over there. So they just tell us when we're having one on, we'll tell you. That's great. Um, right. We also have some advertising that we're doing as well. Yes, yes. Uh, I was getting to it, baby doll. Oh. So we have now started doing some advertising. It starts as little as $25. If you want to want us to advertise your show, your Etsy, your whatever you're doing. I know some people are doing um, uh, psychic readings and stuff online and all that stuff. If you want us to advertise, it starts as little as $25. If you've got a podcast and you want to get more listeners, we can put you out uh, and, and out to the public and uh, get you in front of a lot of people and see if we can't help you get a jump start on your podcast if you want to do that but just send me an email jerrypolly@aol.com i'll send you a list of everything we got and uh, we can go from there but so far the people who have taken advantage of it have seen success so i know isn't that wonderful yes I'm so happy for them yeah and I, while we're on that subject i want to talk about prairie land paranormal uh-huh. um we played their promo at the beginning of the show 
check out their latest episode. It's on the Bell Witch. It is fantastic. I've said a thousand times it's my favorite paranormal story of all time. They did an awesome job on it. And a bunch of you guys have already went and subscribed. But go subscribe to them. Prairie Land, that's one word, Paranormal Podcast. Listen to them and send them some reviews. They only, they're a new show. They only got a couple of reviews, but send them some reviews, some five stars. Let them know the Hillbilly Horror Story sent you. Yeah, give them a listen. All right, let's take a real quick break from our sponsor, and then we are going to play this interview from Charmaine and Bailey. Hey guys, I got Bailey and Charmaine on the phone, and uh, Bailey's a longtime listener. She listens while she works which we always appreciate. Bailey sent me a story, though, on something I had never heard of. Apparently, there's a couple of ghosts that are really well-known in uh, Surrency, Georgia, and there's also a spook light that her mom has actually seen. So they're going to tell us a little bit about these spirits in Surrency. So first of all, Bailey and Charmaine, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So Bailey, Bailey, you want to go ahead and jump in here and tell me you know, without going into a ton of detail, tell me a little bit about these these two ghosts and what you know about them. Cincy's in South Georgia, it's two hours from where I live, close to where my mom grew up. But in the mid 1850s, the guy who founded Cincy, Alan, I call him Alan. He had all sorts of crazy paranormal things happening, and he wrote to the Savannah Morning News saying, "Hey, if anyone can figure this out, you're." feel free to come stay in my house and watch this happen. And if you can put two and two together and figure this out, I would, that word went out and people from all over the world, Greece, Rome, crazy, especially for such a small town, heard and came and just like flocked to his house. Things that were happening were like the clocks would been ridiculously fast. His children were chased by um, like sharp weapons and stuff, like the uh, iron pod for fires. Uh, he would hear whispering, hot bricks. The big thing was hot bricks falling from nowhere and crashing to the floor. Logs, too, and it was ridiculous. And it followed this man until he died in the 1920s. They didn't see any ghosts, so it sounds like poltergeist. And his children were at puberty age, and I know that's a big thing with, like, psychics and stuff. That happened, but there's also another ghost, uh, Spooklight, and my mom's actually seen it, and... I'm going to let her share what she's seen. Hi. There's a place, there's a bridge that you go down in Cersei, and you go under the bridge, and it goes over the railroad tracks. You stand on the railroad tracks, and you look down to the left, and there's a light, and it swings. It's like it goes from one side of the railroad tracks to the other. It goes back and forth like a swinging motion, and then it'll get closer to you, and then it'll disappear and come up behind you. On the other side of you. When we were in high school, the story was that a drunk man got ran over. He was out there. I, I guess he was looking for his head. That don't really make no sense. But he has a lantern, and we're seeing the light is the lantern swinging back and forth as he's walking down the railroad tracks. I was going to say, that's a lot of times when you hear these spook light stories, then there's you know several of them all over the, the United States. Most of the time, it's thought to be a lantern. Because that's the way it kind of looks as it's moving around like a lantern going side by side like you described. There's been scientists come and study it and they can't figure it out. They they said it was swamp gas, ball lightning, and then we always heard it was headlights of cars passing over the railroad tracks on down the tracks. 
Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense because I've seen it hundreds of times, and I've seen it like at 3 o'clock in the morning when there's no cars on the road, and it would stay on and stay on. It would shine like really bright. So it's definitely not car lights. And the other thing with these spook lights, a lot of times they do try to say they're car lights, but these stories will go back way before there were even the invention of cars. So that doesn't explain, you know, what how it would have happened in the 1850s, you know what I mean? Yeah, but it has been, well, for 150 years, it's been a story. And then there's the Searcy family that started Searcy, and they have the haunted house where bricks and stuff flew out of the walls and stuff like that. Now, is that the one she was just telling us about? Yeah. That story, she said originally came out in the 1850s, correct? Right. And she said that that followed him up until he died in the 19th. 1920s. So was that the whole time at that house, or did he move and have stuff happen after he moved? He gave it back because I know more about it. Okay. But uh, so the original house burnt down, and it followed them to the next house across the county. Oh wow. Okay. So that is strange. So this thing was attached to him somehow, some way. Yeah. All his children. He had like I saw a lot of things saying he had six or eight, and I saw one said eleven. But I remember y'all was talking about. Psychics, they get their power around puberty, and some of his kids were around that age, like four of them were. So I'm thinking maybe it was something bad happened to them or just not being under control of their powers. And That's what most poltergeist activity usually is, kids in their uh, puberty years, especially young women. Very likely. So what's your thoughts on what the spook light is? I wouldn't be surprised if it is a story, but knowing science, because I, I believe in a lot of science, but... I also believe in paranormal things, too. So, unless science can figure out reasonable reason why, I don't know. And I'm just going to believe it's some guy was drunk. What else you got for us, Bailey? Anything else? Or is, or is that... Not really the science but my aunt's house haunted. And it, she had things chasing her down the hallways, like throwing... Uh, a cousin put shoes in the closet, and it, he walked away, and it hit him in the back of the head. Well, that's not good. Yeah, anything red would disappear. And we brought our pastor to the church him and my stepdad and he was praying and stuff and they heard footsteps running in the attic and my stepdad just cussed right in front of the pastor like yelling what the what the hell is this or whatever the pastor said whatever was in this house before you bought it you needed to get it out did they get it out yeah no yeah and no well the ghost supposedly stayed with her till she died my mom said but there were a couch and some angel statues that my family bought so we had a big yard, so they were going to burn it. Yeah, the preacher told us to get rid of them, so we brought them to our yard thinking to burn them, that would get rid of it. It followed us. Our AC upstairs went out, downstairs went out. It's just like everything was following us for a week. Yeah, my mom said five bad things happened to us in a week, and eventually she was like, she told my stepdad, Get this out. I'm tired of it. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Bailey Charmaine, I appreciate y'all coming on and sharing the story with us. And I really appreciate you sending us the surrency stories because that might be something we look uh, really deep into and do a show on in the future. Yeah, it was a lot of fun researching. Uh, I learned more than I thought was out there. Good. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on and we appreciate you listening. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, I didn't know if we were going to be able to get one out this week or not with Tracy's illness and being in the hospital, but she got better all of a sudden. (laughs) Now, I wouldn't say all of a sudden. Well, it wasn't all of a sudden, but, but (laughs) you know, you passed the stone, but you were in a fetal position on, like, Thursday. I know, guys. Them daggone stones are, they suck. They suck ass for real, so... So there you go. But we uh, we got it out, and I thought it was a pretty good episode overall. Well, 
Well, thanks. And I thought it was a good episode, too, So actually. Th- thank you, guys, and we will see you soon. Have a blessed week. We love you guys.